For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hey, I'm back. I missed you. I had a little holiday. And this week, we're going to be talking all about power dressing. Now, I've got a question for you. What does that conjure for you? What comes to mind? For me, it was like the classic 1980s, sharp-suited corporate woman, showing the men that you can rule, right, in the 80s. But actually, even though the phrase entered sort of popular parlance for us then, it goes way back. It goes as back as far as fashion does. If you were an ancient Roman, it meant the right to wear purple or gold. I think you had to be royal for that. And actually, royals love a power-dressing moment, don't they? And also, of course, all the courtiers around them. They want to look like they belong, like they're climbing the ladder, who's closest to the, the monarch, all that stuff. Think about Versailles. Power-dressing is the finest brocades and who gets to wear them and the laces and the... Oh, all of it, all the kind of jewels. But last week at the Met Gala, the theme was the Gilded Age. So it's all that kind of richest New Yorkers of the 1890s, 1900s. It's the society snobbery, the white satin, the diamond tiaras. It's showing off your social status, your money. It's who belongs and who doesn't. Now at the Met Gala, that translated as Blake Lively. She was in Versace inspired by the Statue of Liberty. And it was amazing. It was so grand. It was like the train went halfway down the carpet, halfway down the stairs. And she had to have assistance to remove the top train to show the underlay. And it changed colour from copper to patterned verdigris, all that. Like, it was amazing. I mean, who beat that? Actually, <laughs> Lizzo. I think Lizzo might have beaten it. And it is a game. They are trying to win. So she wore black embroidered with gold, Tom Brown. It was like a, a dress with a cape, but I read that it took 22,000 hours to make it. Come on. <laughs> so it's all the handwork. But Lizzo herself described it thus. She said, giving 1888 Baroness ready to take the throne vibes. <laughs> I mean, power dressing in this context is just who can afford to pay for it. Whether in cold hard cash or equivalent press coverage doesn't matter. Yep, I'm going to talk about Kim Kardashian. So Kim borrowed the dress that Marilyn Monroe wore to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to JFK in 1962. And it was said to have cost $12,000 then because of all the hand-sewn crystals. The designer was Oscar-winning costume designer Jean-Louis, who worked on on The Misfits and Something's Gotta Give, and they were Marilyn's last two films. But what you need to know here is that in 2016, that dress sold at auction for, drumroll please, 4.8 million bucks. <laughs> so Kim had the power and status to get that dress. Now, lots of people got very upset about this. People were angry because she crashed dieted to fit into the dress, so oh, the pressure to be thin, all that. Uh, museum curators were upset because, well, celebrities shouldn't get to treat museums like extensions of their wardrobes, right? It undermines conservation work. It means that fragile, valuable cultural artefacts can get damaged or risk damage. So I get that. Good point. But I want to talk about another reason 
why people got offended by Kim. And I think it's not a good point and not a good argument. It's something I really didn't like. It's like this effrontery. How dare she? How very dare she compare herself to an icon like Marilyn? There was so much attacking of her about this. And here's an example of one typical news site article. I just chose it at random. Monroe's legacy lives on 60 years after her death. When that time comes for Kardashian, it's hardly likely she will endure for so long. (laughs) And then the wearing of that dress was an absolute disgrace, a tacky photo opportunity aimed at aligning and failing, right, to aligning her with one of history's most captivating women. Now, don't forget that in her time, Marilyn Monroe was subject to exactly the same kind of crap that Kim gets that she wasn't good enough or classy enough or smart enough, whatever it is. But then collectively, and I think this is really interesting, as a society, we've kind of decided in the decades since her death that Marilyn should be placed on a pedestal now. So forget that people didn't like her when she was then, but now her image, we own it, and we're going to charge it with all these kinds of meanings that she had no say in. So it's power, but who wields it? And who benefits? And importantly, who is it used against? Now, you might disagree with me. Please feel free to do so. And uh, I'd like to hear what you think. But I raise this because it's very relevant to this conversation that you're about to join about women, status and power and who gets to decide how they ought to dress. It's actually not about the Met Gala. It was recorded before. My guest is the British costume designer turned collage artist Jessica Worrell. And I found her through her fashion collages. They're amazing. They mash up like old masters of portraiture of society women from the 16th and 17th century with modern runway looks from big name runway designers, couturiers. And it's such an interesting visual play on power dynamics, modesty, status, dressing to show how rich and powerful you are, dressing because of how the men in your life want you to dress, all of this stuff. So we talk about that and why she makes the collages, but also you can learn about how a costume designer works and what they do. We get into the power dynamics in the theatre. Hint, like fashion, the bosses tend to be men. And of course, we get into Bridgerton and Regency Corps because you can't interview a costume designer without talking about Bridgerton. And oh yeah, wait till you hear the stuff about Elizabethan roughs. It's so interesting. And finally, sumptuary laws. So before we get to it, I'll just ask you if you've heard about these because I've been doing a bit of research on it and they go back to the ancient Greece and ancient Roman times and they were designed to stop just anybody from buying luxury items like fashion. It was about codifying status and restricting access to those who wanted to climb up. And so later on, royalty ran with this idea everywhere, but particularly in Western Europe with the Tudors and the Elizabethans and the French court of Louis XIV. He was the master of this stuff. Today, you might think that if you can afford to buy it, you can have it. But as Kim proved, actually it's still complicated. There remain many circumstances where other people will try to tell us what we can and can't wear and what is appropriate. So much in this. I hope you enjoy this insight into costume design and historic power dressing. You can find Jessica, by the way, on Instagram at Jessica Worrell Digital Collage. 
That is W-O-R-R-A-L-L and we'll share a link and a link to her Etsy page so you can buy her artworks in the show description here. Plus, as usual, head over to thewardrobecrisis.com for more detailed notes. Now, let's hear from Jessica Worrell. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Jessica Worrell. We grew up in the same place. (laughs) We did indeed. It's uncanny. It really is because it is a very small place. It is, yeah. And a a very lovely place. A lovely place. (laughs) I'm really pleased that we're doing this conversation because we've never done an episode with a costume designer. And I I don't know why, but what a lovely opportunity to do it with you. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought we might start by what a costume designer does. I googled what is a costume designer and why (laughs) is it important? And I liked that the first link that came up on my search was to the Oscars website. Obviously, they have Oscars for costume design. Yeah, because we all, we all do that. We all aspire. (laughs) (laughs) I found this a 20 page document explaining what a costume designer does, because I suppose maybe they do that for all of the awards. But anyway, I pulled this one out and it says, whether a story is set in the past, the present, in a distant location or an imaginary time and place, costume designers, obviously collaborating with the director and the rest of the team, help bring the characters to life. Costumes communicate the details of a character's personality to the audience. I mean, I'd say that's actually a pretty good definition of it, really, because, I mean, the way I see it is, you are basically making people believable as a character, as creating the world, the play or the film or whatever takes place in. So it's really, you're making it real to the audience. You're making those characters believable. I I I think especially like in theatre, which is my main thing, when someone walks on stage, you need to know who that person is, in a way what their status is, what kind of person they are. And costume gives you the indicators for that. So so you have this kind of almost sort of subconscious kind of recognition that you know where you are. And then as an audience member, you're able then to listen more, I think, sort of with it. How lovely. And also I was thinking when you were speaking there about the fact that clothes talk before we do. So clothes do speak. They have such a strong communication. Well, yeah. It's like, I suppose it's like children, you know, you have that thing, it's that instinct, isn't it? That whether you're frightened of something or not, and it's whether it looks kind of attractive, I guess, yes. or whether it looks unattractive. And I think we have a way that we, we use clothes in a way to, to as, as kind of signifiers to that as well. That if you see something, you know, and it's kind of big and menacing and you're like, oh, that's not going to be very nice. Or if it's kind of soft, it's like, oh, yeah, that's OK. And so clothes do exactly the same thing as that. Or, and I like that they can also mislead you on purpose if you want to use them to, yeah, Yeah. I was thinking about, this just popped in my head. Have you ever seen Lucy Walsley? I love her. She is a historian with Hampton Court. And I watch her, I don't know where, I just watch her on the telly and she dresses like, She's got a little blonde bob and mm. a little, sometimes a little slide to the side. Yes, she does. A very quirky. And then funny little, she dresses like yeah. a little girl. And yet she has the most mm. serious brain. And yeah. I love the contrast of that, that. If you see a picture of her, you think, what? And then you understand her passions and her gravitas. And it's a lovely balance. I mean, totally. And it is that whole, I suppose it's that wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing that you can get. It's a really good way to mislead an audience that you can make them believe one thing about someone and then twist it sort of with it. Yeah, it's everything about kind of the colour of something, the shape of it, the style of it. 
And they're also really good signifiers of class as well. So the kind of status of someone, whether they're high status or low status, whether they're wealthy, whether they're poor, to downtrodden. I mean, all of those things, you you instantly sort of start to, you know, as a person, you're, you're making a judgment on it as soon as you see someone. And we do that in real life. And we certainly do it when, we, when we're in the theatre or when we're, you know, watching a film or television. There's so much that's fascinating to me in this, Jessica, because, well, first of all, we're going to title this podcast around power dressing, which <laughs> I am very interested in. But also, I think outside of the theatre, or outside of the costume designer's job and world, with there's still a reticence to think that clothes are important or they do signify things about you, but we know they do. So I like that this is a way into getting people to think about the impact of and seriousness of what we decide to dress ourselves in and what sort of impression we want to make. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you only have to look at designer labels and the power that they have you have that thing where you walk past a designer shop, you know, like a Prada or a Gucci boutique. And instantly I'm a working class girl and I just go, ooh. And I know that if I even walk into one of those shops, they're just going to take one look at me and look at what I'm wearing and know that I won't be able to afford anything in that shop. And so there's that sense, you know, like it's like Pretty Woman. It's literally kind of that whole thing from Pretty Woman where it's like, no, no, no. And then so we're doing this thing that we're actually judging the wealth of someone mm. and their kind of status from what they're wearing. And I hate that. I mean, it's awful. It's an awful feeling. And I know when I have that feeling and I feel so self-conscious and so like aware that I'm, and because then I hate feeling like that. It's like, why am I not equal to go into that? Why do I not feel that I'm able to do that? What is it about those clothes that's making me feel like that? And yet that is that insecurity and we can all relate to it and the feeling of do I belong can I belong or do I want to belong or reject it is what the sort of whole basis of designer labels is is built on isn't it it's status um yeah exactly absolutely and uh, there is no getting away from it really I mean Mm. it's sort of and it's happened for centuries and centuries there's always been a way of um, using clothes as a kind of powerful tool, whether it's to do with expensive fabrics. But it, it's hard because you, at the same point, you sometimes need those kind of luxury labels because they're the ones that can afford to do the experimentation. They're the ones that push the boundaries of what fashion is, mm. um, which then influences, you know, the costume and it goes through sort of everything. And so it's quite a difficult dichotomy, really, I think. Yeah. Primarily one is commercial, obviously. But where do you see fashion and costume design overlap? That's maybe the main difference, really, that it's that the parameters are different in terms of what you're doing it for. I kind of think they're the same thing, whether it's a fashion from the 1640s or the 1780s, you know, or the present day. You're looking at the fashions of that time that someone has designed. I was wondering if costume designers somehow purer is the word I wrote down, (laughs) like being unsullied by commerce or the need to sell you something. Is it higher ground? Is it more artistic? Is that something you've ever considered? I mean, I think it's like everything. It it depends on what the context is that you're doing it for. I, I guess I was thinking about it in terms of status because we put fashion designers on a pedestal or some of them, if they're the I actually was thinking about we put him on a pedestal if he's an iconic designer. And I use the pronoun on purpose because so many of those really powerful magic names of fashion, if you like, are men. 
And it's a world of really rigid hierarchies that I think we're trying to disrupt it now, but it's still there. You still talk to fashion students who dream of being the next McQueen. People still want to be the next Dior or the next Yves Saint Laurent. And there's this status that comes with that, that somehow we don't talk about all the people behind the scenes who are making the patterns or creating the vision in Congress or in community. We don't talk about that. We just talk about the one on top who's the famous celebrity one, Tom Ford, whatever. So I wondered about that because since we're talking about status. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Fashion is still a male preserve. You have, you know, all these men designing for women and these men in control of what women look like or aspire to look like. So their narrative is still being controlled by men. And you sort of go, how is that still possible? And there's a, there's the same thing within theatre where it's still a very white male hierarchical kind of institution. And as you go further down, it's like the set designer has got a higher status who's normally male. I mean, there's masses of amazing female designers, but you get down to costume and wardrobe and generally, you know, they work longer hours and they're paid less than anybody else in the theatre. How galling. It's back to that thing of silly women's business, the clothes. It's just like, oh, oh, they go, oh, it's just a, you know, could you, it's just a cloak or it's just a corset. And you're going, that's like hours of the most amazing work womanship has gone into that. And, and they're the ones that they're there at the beginning of the day and they're there at the end of the day because they're preparing everything for the actors. They're then having to clean it all at the end of the day after the actors have been in it. And a lot of your time, there's no consideration to that. And you get a lot of burnout. And the thing is, they're so passionate about what they do. They, you know, they adore clothes. They adore, you know, making things. And it's really taken advantage of, I think, in some places. There's two things there that I thought were really worth sort of exploring a bit more. One was that we're still putting the celebrity star name designer on the top of the heap. But the other was that the craft the practical work of creating the collections. You said cleaning them. And I was thinking all those tasks that you have to perform in order to make clothes sing and be beautiful don't have the attention put on them as, you know, in that triangle where Tom Ford's on the top. Sorry to keep pulling him out, but it could be anyone. But I was I, I shared a post with you the other day from Sarah Moe, who's the English fashion critic who does a lot to support young designers. She's amazing. And she posted this thing saying, the caption was something like, there are amazing opportunities in the UK for craft and career progression in costume design and particularly in tailoring. And then she shared Mm. all these pictures of, you know, famous actors wearing their fantastic period coats, whatever. But she was wondering why more fashion students didn't jump at these chances. And maybe that's one of the reasons. Yeah, I think so. I think because they still... There's that kind of, I guess, that aspirational sort of journey that the road to success is to become, you know, the name of a big fashion house. And anything else that sort of veers you from that path is not as credible. Unless you win an Oscar, that's why I started with the Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you win an Oscar, yeah. Yeah, it's really really strange, actually, because I don't know why people don't go into costume design, because you can do so much within it. But I think, again, it's because it's seen as a kind of female art form and so it's somehow been accepted that it's it's a lesser art form 
apart from sort of you get Adrian or something like that, who's, you know, and, and it's like gowns by Adrian. Well, actually, when you think about it, though, coming back to the art idea and the uh, potential for the theatre or the arts to have a higher status than dirty old commercial rag trade, many of those iconic designers of the past dabbled in or did guest costume design work for the opera or the theatre, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Because it made them feel like they were doing something more elevated, I reckon. And it's really tricky that because there's another argument as well for me as a theatre designer that people say, is theatre design art? And some people say, yes, it is. Again, it's contextual, but some designers that it's a more practical kind of thing. But to other people, they're like, well, no, I think I'm a, I think of myself as an artist. And you could just say that's semantics. But at the same point, it's actually then about how it's looked at, how it's kind of perceived by an audience. Because if you think of it as just they're just providing the setting or they're just dressing people, then you're not going to think of it as an art form. But if you think of it as like they've created this world, this vision, then yes, of course you are an artist. I mean, I think of myself as an artist, but it's taken me a long time to get to that point. Tell us how you began. I went to did a foundation course in art and design, and then I was thinking about what I wanted to then do my degree in. And I didn't feel visionary enough or confident enough to do a fine art degree. And I absolutely love literature and I love art. So Theatre design, to me, combine the two because it's basically the relationship between words and image. And also, I sort of, I love clothes as well. It was something I could do that was artistic and creative. And I wanted to work with other people. I really like the idea of collaboration. Tell us about the magic of the theatre. <laughs> the magic of the theatre. Is it a thing? <laughs> I'm very jaded now because I sort of, I've been working in it for too long. Um, but no, I think it's one of those things that I Again, it goes back to my idea about the collective imagination that when you make a piece that comes together where everything is in sync, where the actors, you know, the the musicians, the lighting, the sound, the costume, the scenery, and it makes this total world and the piece becomes separate to all the individuals that come together to make it. But that for me is the magic of theatre. But it's not about one person. It's about a collective sense of, of making something together. I think that's beautiful. I was also thinking about the electric nature of live. I mean, that is something, actually. I mean, it, I suppose the part of the process that I really like is when you're, for, well, design-wise, I really like the research and development process because you're literally just having all these ideas and you're working out which way it's going to go. But there's something really amazing about being in a rehearsal room, you know, especially with really good actors, and you're just sitting there going, <laughs> and you can feel it you can feel it start to happen and sometimes things happen in a rehearsal room and then you spend the rest of the rehearsals trying to capture that initial feeling of like what was that what what happened there what did we do and so yeah that energy that comes together I think that's what it is that relationship that you can feel in a room because an audience is in the right place at the right time and this synergy sort of happens I was reading a review of, I think it might have been the last play that you worked on before COVID because it was 2020, uh, J.M. Barry's Quality Street. Yeah. They described this bittersweet love story set in the Napoleonic Wars, but they said, Worrell's costumes go from pretty pastels to dowdy checks before erupting into full-on sweet wrapper chic, all gaudy purples, oranges and yellows. And later on, they talked about a production that refuses to be constrained by period costumes. Let's talk about that. Like, how do you bring history up to date 
in a production and and why would you want to? For me, I think it's really important that costume reflects not only the time it was written in or what when it was written about, but also why it's relevant to a modern audience. And I think for me, the way to do that is by having modern references in it, that you need to merge these styles and eras. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're kind of making something that's like almost a reenaction or a reproduction. And then I call that the kind of Downton Abbey sort of syndrome that you're kind yes. of... There's this nostalgia for the past as if that somehow is better than the present. I just don't really understand that, you know, because there's so much wrong with the past. So it sort of perpetuates, you know, this kind of narrative as if the good old days, you know, and I just think that's just ridiculous. Like, you know, well, when everyone knew their class and their place, you know, and women weren't allowed to vote, it's like, yeah, that, yeah, they're those good old days. It's sort of you know, <laughs> ridiculous. So I always try and merge those kind of realities because I just feel that it, it's about making it relevant. Because otherwise, why are you even doing the play in the first place? And a lot of the time when I'm researching something, I look at paintings from the time and art from the time. Also with Quality Street, I looked a lot at uh, cartoons, like political cartoons. And there's a guy called Cruikshank, George Cruikshank, and he uses these very lurid colours in the in the cartoons. And so I basically accentuated some of those. And also you can see, you can look at kind of modern fashions and you can see who's been influenced by Regency period. So you're collecting all these images from everywhere and then making a new reality sort of with them. I think you mentioned that in your um, email about Bridgerton, and I know it's something I feel like I can see it in that, that they're kind of doing this a similar thing, which I love. I mean, I love about that, that it's anachronistic, but it makes it feel both historical and contemporary at the same time, which I think is really important. Yes, um, I sent you, which I thought was so funny, a story in Marie Claire that was an interview with the two costume designers who've done Bridgerton. And they were saying that Regency core is now a thing. Mm. <laughs> but I love that. I mean, I remember, I do remember once that um, I went to see, I think it was the Pride and Prejudice, the um, Kira Knightley one. I went to the cinema and I went on my own because I go and see period drama on my own. And there were these teenagers in there and they, they came out and they were like, oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. And one of the guys was like, he must have been about 17 or 18. He was like, I need to go and get myself some Darcy clothes. You know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's brilliant because there was such swagger with it. And you could see the confidence that that would give someone wearing that. And I was like, oh, I really hope you go and do that. I love it. The other thing I wanted to mention about Bridgerton is that in this interview in Marie Claire, they talked about how they purposefully amped up the colours and the quote was, we increased the amount of glitter and colour and embellishment and they talked about going for a Versace-esque feeling. But the whole idea was to show the nouveau richness of the family. It's the Featheringtons, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's really the core, I guess, of my work is about status and class and how clothing um, or costume enforces that. All right, tell us about your latest project. You, you're making artworks, well, they're digital collages, they're brilliant, of couture or high fashion runway looks juxtaposed with court portraiture from the 16th century. They're your rough portraits. I want to hear about them. So how did it start? So in COVID 2020, theatre work basically ground to a halt, right? Basically everything stopped. I mean, I had work lined up, you know, for the rest of the year into the next year and it all just went 
initially it was just postponed because people weren't sure, I guess, you know, how things were going to play out. And then bit by bit, it just got cancelled. And I think theatre is still trying to recover. I mean, like most industries or creative industries, it's still trying to recover now and it's still really being affected by the COVID um, pandemic. It's still ongoing. As a freelancer, we were just, that was it. I was really lucky. I, I qualified for some government support. There was a good amount of support, maybe not as much as there should have been for the kind of individuals. It feels like we're looking after the institutions and the buildings and the hierarchies, but we're not necessarily looking after the individuals, you know, all the people that sort of the freelancers that support that hierarchy. I've been thinking about making my own work which I haven't done for absolutely years. Um, I've always been part of a collaborative teams. And I just thought, I just want to see what else I can do that isn't tied by the parameters of when you're working on a play. So it's an extension, I guess, of the collages that I, I work with. I mean, even the technique of how I put them together, it, it's really an extension of how I make a theatre design, that I'm taking all these different elements together or how I do a lot of devised theatre. And so you're literally putting all these different elements together to make a new reality. So my collage is really that technique is exactly the same. We came back to this idea of class and status, which is really important to me. And so I just was looking at roughs, I guess, or I was looking at portraits and I was thinking about what I love about the rough is it's the ultimate 16th and 17th century status symbol. Because if you've got a, you know, a big neck ruff on that's stiffened with uh, rods and wire and you literally, your head has to be held high. You also can't bend over to sweep the floor, which <laughs> means that you have servants. If there's all these things that you can't do because you're wearing this ruff. So this, to somebody else, they know that you are of this status. They started off basically as an extension just of the high neck collar. And then they basically grew and grew. So you get a series, you have a strip of fabric which gets curled into almost figures of eight and they go round the neck and it completely encases the neck. And they started off being, I don't know, maybe 15 centimetres, 20 centimetres sort of wide. And then by the mid-17th century, they are, I suppose, like 40 centimetres wide. These wire supports underneath them, I can't for the life of me remember what they're called. There's a name for them. And they're pinned into you, you know, they're starched, they've got lace on them, they've got pearls on them. They take at least five hours to set that you get one wear out of them and then you have to no. reset them and they have to be restarched and soaked. So you have to have servants to be able to do that. So the, the more ornate of the rough. Of course, because they're these big white yeah, stiff things. Yeah. <gasps> So it's this ultimate, yeah, status symbol. So I just started thinking about those and looking at those portraits of when they were painted. And a lot of the portraits are painted to show the family's wealth. They're indicators of their status and they're all dressed in their finery and stuff. And it just made me think about power dressing today and what that is. And I just started putting them together with modern day outfits so referencing the original portraits in that predominantly people were wearing black so you get the whiteness of the rough and then you get the black of the costume so I basically was doing kind of modern interpretation and just seeing what happened when I put those sort of two things together and it's just was really pleasing <laughs> 
So if you're listening to this without having seen any of the Instagram posts or the show notes that show you the visuals, and we'll share links so you can check them out, Jessica, describe one of them or what it might look like. So what kind of modern outfit are we talking about here? I use a lot of Yves Saint Laurent. So it could be, say, a black sequined catsuit with um, marabou feather sort of rough. So it has this opulence and wealth. It's couture. It costs, you know, thousands of pounds. And then you put this amazing 17th century rough against it, always worn by a young female who's obviously being painted in a way to show off her, her attractions. A lot of those portraits were painted as for marriage portraits as well. Oh, so were they? Yeah, so they're either painted to celebrate a marriage or they're painted as a way of actually showing potential suitors, look how wealthy this family is that you're going to marry into. The portraits could be commissioned by the, the woman's father and then they would be owned by the husband afterwards. Oh, the God, woman, really? The, the woman wouldn't own the portrait because she wouldn't her property would go from her family to her husband so I guess that objectification of women is something that I'm really interested in as well and what how a thing. it's it's extraordinary and the more you read about it the more you go ah, what is this so not only did you not have self-determination when it came to who you married someone arranged it for you mm. but then you were trussed up in your finery and your really stiff neck rough put in front of a, the portrait photographer of the day who painted a picture of you that you didn't even own that was passed on to your husband as some sort of object like you were. <laughs> we were we were talking about Bridgerton, but, it, you know, those themes are exactly the same in that, where you've got Daphne saying, I was raised to be married. And, of course, it, the men, it happened to the men as well, but they it, not in the same way you know, as to the women. And so it's not until, I think it's like 1882, something like that, where we had the Women's Property Act, in, this is in England, where women were allowed to own property. They didn't get the vote until, you know, 1920. So you've got this mass of history where everything that a woman does is defined by a male society. And it's only in the last hundred years that they've been allowed to have some sort of self-determination or self-control over, over, over their own destinies. I'm really interested to hear a bit more about how and why you juxtapose these historic portraits with new fashion. Do you want to tell us about the Renaissance ones? The Renaissance ones are a continuation of the rough ones because I, I wanted actually to expand it into colour. Because they're all black. Yeah, they're all black because that keeps within basically the style of the portraits that they're referencing. So they're all from the kind of Dutch kind of golden age and a lot of early 17th mid 17th century sort of portraits so I was looking at stuff that was earlier where you get a lot more kind of lavish colors the reason I guess I I put them with the modern outfits is because I still feel that today even though there's been you know masses and masses of development in terms of women's freedom it's a bit what we were talking about earlier about those fashion houses are still headed up by by men and you still have men basically designing what women should look like so to me of, of course it, that's a huge generalisation, but I see that as being a link between now and before. I guess that's what I'm kind of looking at and what I'm interested in. I'm not, I'm not saying this is definitive. I'm literally just looking at what those connections might be and what that might tell us about how far we've come and how mm. far we need to go. What I love as well is how clever you've been when it comes to putting together these famous paintings, portraits from 400, 500 years ago with the model 
off the runway or wearing the couture or wearing the outfit now and how they you've just done such a good job of choosing the poses and making them feel seamless and the attitude in that someone's hand and the way their head angles. You believe it. You look at these women, you think you would have chosen that Mew Mew crop top, whatever. It's really cleverly done. So that, I mean, that's the kind of, that is the enjoyment of it, actually. It's funny. Um, I mean, that's why I like to have the kind of humour in it as well. Um, it's really important, especially if you talk about something serious. It's good to have a little bit of humour kind of in it. It's weird because I, I suppose they look quite easy, but they do take a while for me to kind of find the perfect match. Uh, and so I try out loads of things before I go, that's the one, that's the one. Are you selling them as prints on Etsy? People can buy them, right? I'm going to buy one. I've actually chosen one for a friend as well. I feel oh, like it's, she needs it. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I am. That's, that's my kind of way of trying to support myself so I'm not having to do so much theatre. And also because everyone's reaction on Instagram has been, I mean, I started putting them on in, I think it was October last year. I forced myself to share them because I was just doing them at home and I was a bit like, maybe I should move. And everyone was so nice, like my mates and stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Because it's something <laughs> that you're, you're kind of just exposing yourself in a way that I was like, I just don't know if I want to do that. But I made myself do it. And everyone was just really, really lovely. So it's just kind of snowballed from there, actually. I was going to ask you if any of the designers whose modern pieces you've featured in these collages have reached out to you or noticed. And I'd actually written this question before we spoke. And I was like, I feel like it's got to be the Scaparelli ones. Like they're so, have you tried reaching out to them? And then I saw that they had actually shared it and you were You'd posted saying the one that they shared, the image you shared was your mum's favourite. Well, well, they actually shared like five of them and said, which one is your favourite? And amongst them wasn't the one that my mum has. Um, and she's got one of them on her wall now at home in the village, which is very nice. And um, yeah, it was pretty mental, actually, because they loved them. Because I'm always really nervous. Like, are they going to think I'm being derogatory or not? But I'm not. I mean, it is a homage to, you know, the beauty of couture. It's just I'm asking questions about everything around that but they're aware of those questions as well and they basically shared them and apparently they've been in then they got in touch with me afterwards and they said they've been in the office and they were all basically voting for their favorite like Daniel Rosebury and I was literally like going okay (laughs) that's so good I'm going to ask you to read out a caption you wrote for another one of your collages this one is a Gucci logoed bright yellow two-piece with like a pencil skirt and then a little crop top bra top And it's a collage with a 1540 portrait of a lady by Hans Holbein. Do you want to read out the caption? Because I'm so intrigued by the the history on this. Okay. Uh, 16th century sumptuary laws in Western Europe laid down strict rules, not only as to the type of fabrics that particular social classes could or could not wear, but also what colour these fabrics could be. So you literally would be able to tell the rank or status of a person, not only by the cut, but also by the colour of their clothes. And of course, the brightest, shiniest colours were reserved for the upper classes. Ostensibly, this was to stop people spending beyond their means on expensive fabrics. But what it really did was preserve the social order. People could be fined for wearing something they were not permitted to. Wow. So basically, the powers that be, the government the royal family, tell you what colours you can or can't wear. And I did know this about papal purple, actually. But so you couldn't wear yellow. Yeah, I mean, basically, these laws have been in place. And this is mainly, we talk about Western Europe here. It's specifically sort of Western Europe from kind of Roman times in one sort of shape or form. But I think they've reached the highest point 
from the 14th to the very early 17th century, where every town or duchy or country would have its own version of these rules in some shape or form. They were very big in Italy. In England, there was just loads of them. And I think um, Henry VIII was massively into them. Elizabeth I was massively into them. And they literally were laying down who could wear what. And as I said, like in, in the description, ostensibly it was to stop people spending beyond their means. So if you're spending a huge amount on kind of like clothing, then maybe there's not enough left to pay taxes or something. (laughs) But also there was another reason as well that there was a political thing to it, apparently, that they didn't want a lot of the wealth going out of the country. So they didn't want you to spending all your money on imported Italian silk or Dutch wool or whatever. They wanted you basically to be spending money on by British um, so it was a wow. way, I think, of regulating behaviour. But a lot of it really was about preserving the rank and status of people. Right. And they do, I mean, they're extraordinary. And, and, and I mean, they do say that we don't know exactly how well they were monitored, you know, and actually kind of implemented. Like there wasn't like someone going around going, you need to take that off now. They're called the sumptuary laws. They covered what type of fabric you could wear, depending on your social class. Um, And we didn't have a class system, I suppose, in that time. It was mainly like the nobles and then there was like everybody else, you know, in that way. But they they were controlling what the nobles could wear as well. So like the royals could wear one thing. They could wear the purple and the gold. I think earls and ladies, I mean, they could have gold and they could have velvet, but sometimes it could only be on their sleeves. So it was the amount of how much you could actually have. And even down to like, if you were from the working class, you could wear a wool coat, but you could only use like two and a half yards for it. Really? So you couldn't have these aspirational shapes. Yeah, you couldn't make those because that would be you basically having social aspirations and dressing above your station. So on a recent podcast with a fashion historian called Rachel Elspeth Gross, we talked about wartime rationing, make do and mend. And, you know, I was goggling my eyes at the idea of government telling you that you were restricted into how many buttons you could use, how many pleats you were allowed. But that was about the war effort and ensuring there was enough material to go towards making uniforms for the troops and conserving resources. I was saying, oh, uh, how can you imagine it? But you can imagine it because there's precedent across the centuries, except that it was used for other purposes too, to basically keep you in your place and tell you that you weren't allowed to look like you were above your station. I mean, totally. It was, yeah, it was totally sort of about that. I mean, and they very cannily, I think they found some passages from the Bible where it said that, um, is it a luxury or sumptuary goods? Is the right of kings. It's only in the kind of lords, you know, and and I suppose the kings were God's representative. When you get back to the divine right of kings, the kings are the representative of God and the clergy. So they were allowed to wear all these, all these colours, but everyone else wasn't. It wasn't just colours and fabrics and luxury that was subject to all these rules. There were also rules about how much you might reveal and coming back to the idea of power and status and the role and place of women. There were rules around how much of your hair you could show. You see this all the way up into the kind of 18th century that women, once they were married, were meant to cover their hair. The long flowing hair, you can see this in the history of art, is basically a symbol of, of a virgin and a virtuous sort of woman. So you could have your, you could show your hair while you were on the marriage market, I guess, you know, young. But once you were married, you, your hair had to be tied up and then it basically had to be hidden. 
And it's really interesting, you know, because now we have this whole thing in the kind of Western Europe where there's a debate about Muslim women covering their hair. And it's like you forget that this is actually something that we've had within Western Europe as well. White Western Europe, I mean. Right. I thought it was so interesting just to read about the different hood styles. There's a French hood and then there's a gable hood and the French hood shows more of the hair. And that was favoured by Anne Boleyn. But obviously once she went out of favour, then the French hood goes out of favour. Of course, it wasn't virginal, but it was virtuous. Like virtue was a huge thing. But even when you were married, it's all about being virtuous and being dutiful, I guess, in that way. So I really like the contrast between that and then the kind of I suppose, how immodest, I guess, some sort of modern fashion is and what Mm. happens when you put those sort of two things together. Like what's proper, what's deemed acceptable and civilised by some. Exactly. And because we still have this argument about is a woman dressing provocatively, that somehow the onus is on her. You're dressing provocatively. If anything happens to you, it's your fault in some way. But at the same point, you've got all these men designing these outfits that are then deemed to be provocative. It's like, well, what's that about? And it's really interesting for me because I'm very prudish, like I'm very, very modest and very prudish. And I don't have a kind of body self-confidence, you know, that I could wear any of those outfits. So I find it really interesting about how empowering they are, you know, and are they empowering or to women? And I'm really interested to women. Why are they empowering? Are they or or not? Mm. Or do they feel obliged to wear them, I guess? Let's end on that because... There is a fantastic collage that you made with a contemporary piece by the couturier Iris van Herpen, and it's mm-hmm. like a three D printed, very constricting corset. And if people know her work, it's fascinating. It's all shapes and futuristic and organic and futuristic at the same time, but very constructed and surprising. Makes you think a lot. But your take on it was that you said that you felt quite uncomfortable. You weren't sure how you felt about it. And you talked about how you love her work and it looks so thrilling. But at the same time, this woman seems so constricted. And you sort of liken it to the constraints of the roughs we talked about before and then the corsetry. That's actually a really good example, that one, because I think that's the one that I feel the most kind of uncomfortable about and unsure about what it is. I mean, I suppose I could look at it as a piece of body sculpture or performative kind of art in that way, but I don't know how it functions as a piece of fashion or clothing because there's no practicality to it. And it looks to me as if it's something that's saying, look at me, look at this piece Mm -hmm. of clothing or whatever it is that I'm wearing so you see that but you don't see the person in a way in it so it objectifies things in a way that I find quite I'm very very unsure about and I don't know if it's because I just like things to be comfortable and also I feel very self-conscious about anything that's that kind of revealing but it's also constricting isn't it really constricting you couldn't bend down and you'd need servants to do the vacuuming you for listening to wardrobe crisis you can find the show notes for each episode over on our website www.thewardrobecrisis.com and that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters i hope you've enjoyed the show i'd love you to help us spread the word tell a friend share on social media or leave us a rating and review in apple podcasts it really helps new listeners find us on the app You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.
Because I love you. 